If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. The Truth In My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth In My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hi, this is Dr. Adrienne Torres. Today, I'm going to follow up with John Torres, director of Truth In My Days, about a topic he mentioned in the series of best arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. He said he returned to that with more detail, and today he will do that. It concerns the testimony of Josephus. John, could you begin by refreshing our memories about what that is? Certainly. Josephus, or his, by his full name, Titus Flavius Josephus, was a first century AD Jewish historian whose monumental works, Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War, provide us with most of what we know about first century AD Jewish history, as well as providing interesting details about Roman history. Now, for our purposes, what's particularly noteworthy is that in his book, Antiquities, section 18.3.3, written around the year 94, Josephus talks briefly about Jesus in the following passage that has come to be known as the Testimonium Flavianum. And this is what he writes. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one must call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. That is amazing. It corroborates most of the key points of Christianity. Jesus' miracles, his public teaching, his converts, both Jews and Gentiles, his title as the Christ, and especially his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. It does. That's why I listed it as one of the best arguments for the resurrection. But it seems to me most Christians don't even know about it. I think you are correct. I think most of them don't know about it. Why not? Well, as I've mentioned more than once, when human history reached the so-called Age of Enlightenment, the roots in the 16th century, uh, and then taking off in the 17th and especially the 18th century, The goal among the leader classes, the intelligentsia, the philosophers, the rationalists, was to drive out God and make man the measure of all things. And that required discrediting Christianity, which in turn required discrediting the Bible and especially the New Testament, and all supporting evidence for Christianity, including this testimonium Flavianum. So, This testimonium that had been accepted for almost 1,500 years was now suddenly challenged almost 1,500 years after it was written. How was it attacked? 
At first, the bald assertion was made that Christians had altered the text to make it sound Christian, to put in their propaganda, so to speak. Uh, that was done by a certain scholar named Joseph Scaliger. And he just made the claim and didn't offer any supporting evidence for it. That doesn't seem convincing, does it? No, which is why skeptical scholars subsequently had to come up with some sort of reasons for denying the authenticity of the passage. Uh, one Lucas Osiander was the first in 1592, and his argument was basically that, look, no Jew could have written such a thing. If he believed that Jesus rose from the dead, he would certainly have become a Christian. And then a certain Rabbi Lusitanus and a fellow named Tanagai Lefebvre argued that the testimony in Flavian was incongruous. It interrupts the flow of the narrative at that part of the book and so must have been inserted later by someone else. And those remain the main arguments to this day. And do they have anything else? Yes. In the intervening years, more arguments have been put forth. Uh, for example, the claim that no church father prior to Eusebius appealed to the testimony in Flavianum, uh, the argument that the vocabulary of the passage differs from Josephus' usual vocabulary, the argument that there's no mention of Jesus in the corresponding passage in Josephus' other book, War of the Jews. Uh, another argument is that the passage is not listed in an ancient table of contents of the book. And finally, one that uh, a certain Agapius, who wrote a, an Arabic version of the passage in the 10th century, which differs from the one we have, proves that the version in the Greek and Latin manuscripts is not original. If these are strong arguments against the authenticity of Josephus' testimony, we can't use it. If. In fact, they're not strong arguments. They're in fact remarkably weak. They look very much like ad hoc arguments, basically made up by people who want the passage to be inauthentic, instead of actually finding these and then questioning the passage. And they certainly didn't convince everyone. Through the years, there have been ardent defenders of this passage countering what the skeptics said. And it didn't really seem to change until the 20th century when evangelical scholars seem to throw in the towel on defending the passage. Really? Yes. Uh, by way of illustration, consider that William Whiston in his famous translation of the works of Josephus, first published in 1737, included an excellent dissertation vindicating the authenticity of the testimony in Flavianum. In the so-called revised and expanded edition of this work published by Craigle in 1999 with a commentary by Paul L. Meyer. Weston's dissertation is still included, but Meyer includes his own aside on the passage in which he averts that the option that this passage is authentic is, quote, held by very few and would seem home hopeless, unquote. Interestingly, his justification for this comment is that no Jew could have claimed Jesus as the Messiah who rose from the dead without converting to Christianity, and Josephus did not convert. Basically, the same argument advanced by Osiander more than four centuries earlier. One evangelical scholar writes this, and I quote, The early Christians thought it was a wonderful and thoroughly authentic attestation of Jesus and his resurrection. They loved it. 
Then the entire passage was questioned by at least some scholars during the Enlightenment, but today there's a remarkable consensus among both Jewish and Christian scholars that the passage as a whole is authentic, although there may be some interpolations. In other words, early Christian copyists inserted some phrases that a Jewish writer like Josephus would not have written. What are these supposed interpolations? Well, for example, where Josephus writes, if indeed one must call him a man, uh, because this implies that Jesus was more than human and therefore appears to be an interpolation. The part that says he was the Christ, and the scholars will say that it's unlikely that Josephus would call Jesus the Christ here, whereas elsewhere in the book, he merely said that Jesus was called the Christ. And the third supposed interpolation is obviously the one where Josephus writes, he appeared to them alive again the third day. And the scholars aver that it is not likely that Josephus, an unbeliever, would declare that Jesus rose from the dead. So evangelical scholars assure us that the passage is authentic except for these three interpolations. So basically, we should reject all of the actual substantive parts. Yes. No wonder liberal scholars will go along with this. It seems to me like an unspoken agreement where liberals admit the passage is authentic in exchange for evangelicals discarding everything that actually makes the passage important as evidence. Well, that evangelical scholar tells us that even this way, Josephus corroborates important information about Jesus that he was the martyred leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that he was a wise teacher who had established a wide and lasting following, despite the fact that he had been crucified under Pilate at the instigation of some of the Jewish leaders. So what? Those facts don't do anything to prove Jesus as the Christ, which is why all the liberal scholars already accept them. Yes, it, it does seem like a rather Faustian bargain. Unless the arguments against authenticity are actually strong. Can we go through them? Sure. But let's note first that every extant manuscript of Josephus has the Testimonium Flavianum in it. There's no extant manuscript without it. So the burden of proof is on those people who want to say that originally it wasn't there. Let's understand that. And now let's go through their arguments. Uh, number one. No Jew would have written such things about Jesus. That's the claim that's made. And right away, we should point out that each person is an individual, not merely a member of a tribe or member of a group, and may do things that are not usually done by members of that group. Uh, Jews in those days, for example, were supposed to have nothing to do with Gentiles. But Josephus, although the Romans gave him a tract of land in Judea, didn't stay there after the Jewish war. He went to Rome, he settled in an apartment in Vespasian's former mansion, and he was paid a stipend by Romans so he could spend his time writing his books. So we can't assume that any one particular Jew would or would not have done something. But uh, let's look at the things in the passage that supposedly no Jew would have written. Number one, if indeed one must call him a man, and this supposedly implies Jesus was more than human. Uh, and it really doesn't, not in the way the skeptics are saying. In fact, it simply raises a question about Jesus 
that is a very reasonable question to ask in light of the miracles he did, of which Josephus shows knowledge. Even in Jesus' own time, people, and not just his followers, wondered who he was and made suggestions consistent with calling him something more than a man. In Mark 6, 14, for example, we see King Herod uh, thinks that Jesus is actually John the Baptist risen from the dead. So the fact that Josephus asks if indeed one must call a man is not at all strange. On the other hand, no Christian would have made such an interpolation. Christians know and understand that Jesus was indeed fully man. So no Christian interpolator would write such a thing, whereas Josephus might indeed write such a thing. Good point. The second supposed interpolation is he was the Christ. And according to this scholar, his reference to James, Josephus later refers to James the Just, the brother of Jesus. And there Josephus wrote that Jesus was called the Christ. And it is unlikely, says this scholar, that Josephus would call him the Christ here, if elsewhere he merely said that he was called the Christ. Now this objection is actually funny. How so? Well, the skeptic says unlikely, it's unlikely Josephus would have in one place called him Christ, and another he was called Christ. Really? Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 16b to 17. We read, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So you see there in two contiguous verses, Matthew calls him Jesus who is called Christ. And then the next, very next verse calls him the Christ. So Matthew did do this, this very thing that our scholar is telling us is unlikely someone would do. So why exactly, if Matthew did it, is it unlikely Josephus would do it? Probably you'd find the examples like this in regular writing that we know, modern writing, where um, an author can refer to someone in two ways. Yeah, you just have to read a little bit to realize that objection is completely vacuous. And that brings us now to the third objection, the third supposed interpolation he appeared to them alive again the third day. And the objection is that a Jew who wrote that Jesus rose from the dead would certainly have converted, and Josephus didn't convert. How do you explain that? Well, there are two problems with that claim. First, how do we know he didn't convert? Skeptics point to two statements of uh, a church father called Oregon, who lived from 185 to 254. And there's some stunning hypocrisy here. There's so much good information in these early Christian writers about who wrote the gospel books and when and how, and they reject it all because they don't want the gospel books to be authenticated. But you pick one church father who says something they find useful and well, suddenly you have to believe them. Uh, so this appeal to Oregon is, is hip hypocritical on their part. Uh, secondly, how do we, how do Oregon be in a position to necessarily know? 
And maybe Josephus was a secret convert. That did happen. If you look at John 19, 38, we read Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And perhaps more significantly, it's not true that a Jew would necessarily convert if he knew Jesus rose from the dead. Look back in Matthew 28, when the tomb guards come to the chief priests and report to them what they had seen. Jesus was, has risen from the dead, and they buy and pay for a lie instead of accepting it. They don't convert. They bribe the soldiers to say, tell them his disciples came and stole the body while we were sleeping. And we don't have to have just ancient testimony to that. Consider a man named Pinkas Lapid. He was a 20th century Orthodox rabbi and theologian and author. Uh, at some point, he decided to examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus with the intent to disprove it, to show that Jesus did not rise from the dead. But he was an honest scholar, an honest historian, and he came to the conclusion that the evidence supported the resurrection. And he said, I quote, I accept the resurrection of Jesus not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. Yet he didn't convert because he concluded that Jesus was just for the Gentiles, not for the Jews. So since we have a, a, an actual example, even in our lifetimes, of a person who a Jew who believed that Jesus rose from the dead and did not convert, nevertheless, we cannot insist Josephus must have done so. It seems to me that at the time of Josephus, the Christians were persecuted, and there's plenty of reasons for him not to become a Christian, even if he believed the facts. Yes, that's why another reason why this is simply not a good argument against the passage. And do note that this what we've just looked at is supposedly the strongest evidence against the authenticity of the passage, and it completely fails. Uh, the rest of the arguments are, in fact, rather desperate attempts to pile on, and they all fail. But let's do go through them. The second main argument is that no church father prior to Eusebius appealed to the testimonium, testimonium Flavianum. But who really is Eusebius? Eusebius was a so-called church father. He was a Christian who wrote. He lived in the latter part of the third, early fourth century, and he wrote a massive work on church history after Christianity being legalized and quotes from a lot of books that are no longer extant. So he's a, a source of information, a very valuable source of information on the beginnings and growth of the church. And the argument is that, that well, nobody before Eusebius ever mentioned this testimony in Flavianum. And what they're trying to say is that, look, that passage has apologetic value, and nearly church fathers should have appealed to it in their debates. One skeptic says, and I quote, it is not cited until Eusebius does so in the fourth century, despite the fact that such a passage would have been extremely effective, to say the least, since it comes from a Jew who was born only a few years after Jesus' death, in the debates between Jews and Christians, especially since we know that Justin Martyr attempted to answer the charge that Jesus had never lived and that he was a mere figment of Christian imagination. Is that a good argument? No. Actually, this is a remarkably ill-conceived argument. This skeptic is really thinking like a, a 20th century liberal scholar, not like an early Christian apologist. 
why would an early Christian apologist want to use a short paragraph from Josephus, who, yes, was born only a few years after Jesus' death, when he had the gospel books, which are far more detailed and are eyewitness testimony written by people who were alive at the time of Jesus and knew him personally? Is it because Josephus was, as this person says, a Jew? Perhaps a skeptic has forgotten that Matthew, Mark, and John, and indeed all the New Testament writers except Luke, were also Jews. Or was it because Josephus was a Jew who affirmed the facts about Jesus but did not convert, unlike Matthew, Mark, John, and the others? But in that case, if Justin had cited him, his opponent would simply have pointed out that the evidence was obviously not enough to convince Josephus, so why should it convince him? And the skeptic is also missing a huge elephant in the room. Josephus was viewed as a traitor by the Jews because he had joined the Romans during the rebellion. They had no truck with him and wouldn't even study his writings for centuries. So it would have been absolutely useless to appeal to Josephus and unnecessary to do it uh, to boot. And it might be very different now in today's environment. Josephus' testimony is very valuable, but then it really wasn't. What else? The third one that we mentioned, the testimony of Flavianum is clearly an interpolation because it interrupts the flow of Josephus' narrative at this point. What do they mean by that? That uh, skeptic Lusitanus put it this way almost 400 years ago, quote, Josephus telleth first how Pilate hath given cause for rebellion, whereupon the text should continue to say how about the same time still another tumult happened unto the Jews. But because in between them is told the history of Jesus, the text doeth not hang together, the other tumult pointeth to the first. Our more modern skeptic puts it this way, the passage breaks the continuity of the narrative, which tells of a series of riots. That does not sound like much of an argument. It isn't. It isn't an argument at all. Josephus is recounting history in chronological order, and the fact is that Jesus' ministry did come between the two riots. It's sort of like writing about the first half of the 20th century, writing about the Russo-Japanese War, and then World War I, and then the Great Depression, and then World War II, and then having a skeptic come along and say, wow, you didn't write that part about the Great Depression, must be an interpolation because it's interrupting the series of early wars of the century. This is pretty obviously a desperate gambit to undermine Josephus' testimony. There is no substance to it. I agree. There, there doesn't seem to be any substance to it. And uh, the, the way that he's telling the story is chronological anyway. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know why they would make such an argument, except that they're really desperate. And number four, the vocabulary of the Testimonium Flavianum differs from Josephus' usual vocabulary. That's the charge. That one sounds impressive. Only because most people have no idea about such things and so tend to accept such claims without question. Is that true? No. If you look at the examples, they absolutely collapse. One skeptic, for example, says that in the passage, the Greek word poietes is used for doer, which is what the word originally meant, but later was used for poets. And Josephus uses it this way nine times when referring to Greek poets. So they are saying Josephus himself would not have used poetis in this passage. What's wrong with that argument? Well, first and obviously, 
if indeed Josephus would not use po poetes to refer to a doer, because then I come to have a special reference to literary poets, then how much less would a later interpolator use this word in this passage to mean doer? Good point. In fact, the New Testament writers do use the word poetes to refer to Greek poets when that is what they want to talk about, Acts 17, 28. But elsewhere, they use poetes in its original sense to refer to doers. Romans 2, 13, James 1, 22, 23, 25, James 4, 11. So we cannot deny either use to Josephus. And as fun as this has been, there's actually no point to wasting time and arguments from vocabulary or style, as these impress only those who are utterly ignorant of statistical analysis. In fact, because of the variability inherent in language, it requires a large sample of a writing to establish authorship. Uh, George Adney Ewell, one of history's great statisticians and reader of statistics at the University of Cambridge, in his 1944 book, Statistical Study of Literary Vocabulary, showed that it takes a sample of at least 10,000 words to form any solid statistical basis for authorship. Inasmuch as this passage comprises only 89 words, this line of argument against authenticity is completely useless. Any other arguments? Number five, there's no mention of Jesus in the corresponding passage in Josephus' War of the Jews. In other words, Josephus doesn't mention Jesus in his earlier work, but does in this later work. Is that a good argument? Not really. Remember that Antiquities was written around the year 93 to 94, uh, which puts it uh, 14 to 16 years after the earlier one. Perhaps when he was writing the earlier one, he had not yet come across the evidence for the miracles and resurrection of Jesus and so on, and he came across it later. But for whatever reason, the gap in the writing between them means that, yeah, you don't expect that whatever's in the first book has to be in the second book or vice versa. So it's not a good argument. What else? Well, it gets more and more desperate. The next argument is that there's an ancient table of contents referred to in the Latin version of the 5th or 6th century that omits mention of the testimonium. But that table of contents is admittedly selective. It's not exhaustive and not meant to be. So any particular passage not being mentioned proves nothing. And since Eusebius quotes from this passage a century or two before this table of contents, it is more unbelievable that Eusebius is quoting a non-existent passage, isn't it? Yes, that argument doesn't make sense. Any others? Uh, yes, uh, though this last one is not like the others. In 1971, a 10th century Arabic version written by Agapius was found, and this was different from the form we know. It changes and omits some of the very things liberal scholars object to. For example, instead of, he appeared to them alive again the third day, this version says they reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was still alive. Sadly, evangelical scholars fall all over themselves in their haste to embrace this version as being the original, or approximately the original, and popular level apologists follow along without any apparent question or critical assessment. But isn't it possible that this version is the original? No. You see, the order of events in this version is quite different from the order in Josephus. And what you see from that order is it's actually paraphrasing the references that Eusebius made in his fourth century writing. He isn't even looking. This author didn't look at 
the testimonium in its original form, he looked at its Eusebius quotes of it, and then he reworked that. And since it's based on Eusebius' work, it cannot be better than that, and cannot be certainly cannot be the original. In fact, it looks as if Agapius altered Eusebius' text, so his version is actually nothing more than a corrupted version of Eusebius' version, cobbled together carelessly in the 10th century by a man who freely interpolated the text according to his own uh, suppositions. It's physically impossible that his product is the original version. So why are the evangelical scholars so ready to accept this as the original? They shouldn't. We really do need to do our due diligence in such cases. So in conclusion, what would you say about this testimonium Flavianum? It is a remarkable extra-biblical testimony to the facts of Jesus' ministry, miracles, death, and resurrection, written in the first century by a Jewish historian who, by all accounts, was not a Christian believer. As such, it is a powerful apologetic tool that should be widely used by Christians. However, this has been stymied by accusations that it is inauthentic, and these accusations have been embraced by evangelical scholars and apologists. But a careful examination of the objections against it, as we've shown, demonstrate that these objections are bogus. The passage is authentic as we have it and belongs on our list of the best arguments for the truth of the resurrection. Thank you, John. That was enlightening, the part about this testimonium, Flavianum. And I guess, you know, as Christians, we should always remember that Outside the Bible, there's objective evidence that the resurrection did take place. Indeed there is. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. Or... Reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. <laughs>